0: Welcome everyone. I'm Garfield Green, student president for Arizona State University's chapter of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. On behalf of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, it's my great pleasure to, to welcome everyone here to Neeb Hall on the campus of ASU in Tempe, Arizona. This Thursday evening, March 30th, 1995, for this special event. A debate on the question, is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? between two international spokesmen and scholars, Dr. Michael Brown and Dr. Emmanuel Shokhet. Without any further delay, I would like to introduce the spokes, the announcer for this evening's event, Mr. Scott Hinkle. Good evening and shalom. Tonight's debate will focus on the two related questions. Is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? And can a Jew believe in the New Testament and still remain true to historic Judaism? Arguing the affirmative position will be Dr. Michael L. Brown. Dr. Brown, a Jewish follower of Jesus from Gaithersburg, Maryland, is a biblical and Semitic scholar as well as a published author with a PhD in Near Eastern languages and literature from New York University. His books, articles, and sermons have been translated into more than 10 languages. He has spoken throughout the world taking a message of repentance and revival to Israel, the church, and the nations. Dr. Brown has debated biblical questions with rabbis on the radio, on television, and on many college campuses. Arguing the negative position will be Dr. J. Emmanuel Shohet. Dr. Shohet is an authority on Jewish philosophy and mysticism who has authored more than 20 books as well as numerous articles. Many of his writings have been translated into Hebrew, French, Italian, and Portuguese. A renowned worldwide lecturer on Jewish thought, ethics, and social issues, Dr. Shohet is the rabbi of Kielser Congregation and professor of philosophy at Humber College in Toronto, Canada. He is widely recognized as one of the foremost spokesmen for Orthodox Judaism. And now to introduce our panel, first the moderator of this evening's debate will be Mr. James White, Mr. White is the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries. He holds a bachelor's degree in Bible and a minor in Biblical Greek from Grand Canyon University where he graduated summa cum laude and was a Ray Maben scholar. He also holds a master's degree in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. He is an ordained Baptist minister and has served as adjunct professor teaching church history at Grand Canyon University. He is the author of seven books on such topics as theology, apologetics, and the text and translation of the Bible. Mr. White is an experienced debater, having argued a variety of biblical topics in debates throughout the United States. The other three members of our distinguished panel are Jennifer P. Norrie, Randy Nussbaum, and Michael Simonson. Ms. Norrie graduated magna cum laude from the Arizona State University College of Law, where she was a member of Law Review. In addition to her wide experience in litigation, she has lectured on technology exchange and intellectual property issues at the Beijing Institute of Foreign Trade in Beijing, China and also served as a faculty member for the National Institute of Trial Advocacy. Ms. Norrie has formed her own law firm in Scottsdale, Arizona, where she currently practices. Mr. Nussbaum received his Bachelor of Arts degree cum laude and his law degree from Arizona State University. He is a member of the State Bar of Arizona and the Scottsdale and Maricopa County Bar Associations, for whom he is a frequent author and lecturer. He is a graduate of the Scottsdale Leadership Training Program and an active participant in the Scottsdale Chamber of Commerce and has extensive experience in both coaching and judging high school mock trial competitions. Mr. Nussbaum's professional affiliations include responsibility for overseeing all continuing education programs sponsored by the ASU Law School Alumni Association, for which he is Vice President. Mr. Simonson is a graduate of the Washington University School of Law in St. Louis, Missouri. He currently serves as Judge Pro Tem in Maricopa County Superior Court Phoenix City Court, and Mesa City Court. I will now turn over these proceedings to our moderator, Mr. James White. This evening
1: we are privileged to have two very competent scholars before us who are prepared to give us the best their position has to offer. They have agreed to engage in a truly scholarly debate, one that seeks to concentrate on the substance of the issue alone. Many debates in our modern culture are marked by what I call cheap debating tricks. One or both sides attempt to win the audience's approval by means of humor, one-upmanship, glitzy presentation, or other emotional and subjective performances. Rather than focusing upon the issues and engaging in logical and sound argumentation, such spectacles use all sorts of improper means to sway the audience. One need only observe so-called political debates to observe how rarely the real canons and rules of proper scholarly debate are followed. This evening we have two scholars who are making mutually exclusive claims. They propose to offer objective evidence in defense of those claims. Such evidence would refer to proof or data that is normally accepted as carrying weight for both sides in the debate. Personal faith or belief, therefore, no matter how important to either debater, does not amount to proof, and is therefore immaterial. To be more specific, Jews and Christians agree on the truth of the Jewish Bible, known as Tanakh to Jews, and Old Testament to Christians. The Jewish Bible, therefore, is clearly sufficient proof or evidence for both sides in our debate this evening. Whatever goes beyond this Biblical text cannot be accepted as a persuasive argument given in proof of a point. Quotations from the Jewish Talmud, Midrashim, and commentators are sacred, meaningful, and convincing for a believing Jew, but do not prove anything to a non-Jew or others who do not accept these sources as authoritative or binding. Likewise, quotations from the New Testament or Christian commentators are sacred, meaningful, and convincing for a believing Christian, but do not prove anything to a Jew or others who do not accept these sources as authoritative. A Jewish person, therefore, cannot argue in a debate, I know this to be the true meaning of the Bible because the Talmud or Jewish tradition says so, nor can the Christian in turn argue, I know this to be the true meaning of the Bible because the New Testament or Christian tradition says so. All and any claims or allegations this evening must have to follow self-evidently from the actual text that is acceptable to both parties, either because it is stated so explicitly or because it follows clearly by way of the rules of logical deduction. All this does not preclude either side quoting or citing whatever sources they wish, provided that the debaters and the audience understand what the criteria or standards for proof are. Our debate this evening will deal with the two fundamental questions dividing the two positions. Number one, is Jesus the Messiah promised in the prophecies of the Jewish Bible? And number two, Is it possible for a Jew to remain faithful to historic Judaism and also accept or believe in the New Testament? Before the actual presentations, each side will offer a statement of purpose explaining their perception and expectations of this evening's discussion. Having engaged in many scholarly debates myself, I have a few requests to make of you, the audience, and of our scholarly debaters this evening. To Dr. Brown and Dr. Shochet, I say that I, as the moderator, will be particularly strict when it comes to maintaining the agreed upon time limitations. Staying within those limitations shows respect both for the audience as well as for one's opponent. And of you, the audience, I would like to request the utmost in respect for our debaters this evening. We have come here to listen to what they have to say. You may well feel the overwhelming urge to make an audible comment. Fight that urge. You may wish to express your wholehearted agreement with a particular speaker's point by clapping, sit on your hands. (laughs) You will have the opportunity of expressing your thanks to these men at the end of the debate. And further remember that any clapping or interruptions during the presentation only detracts from the ability of both speakers to do their very best. With that said, our format this evening, as you have in your handout, Indicates debaters will begin with a four-minute opening statement. We have changed that to a five-minute opening statement beginning with Dr. Shokhet. So Dr. Shokhet The podium is yours for your five-minute opening statement, sir Good
2: evening I oppose in principle this type of debate because first of all halacha Jewish law disapproves of polemical debates. Okay, start again. I oppose in principle this type of debate because, first of all, halacha, Jewish law, disapproves of polemical debates about our faith, since A, it is basically a waste of time, B, another's religion is of no relevance to us, and C, debates may result in negative effects by unavoidably provoking the other side. Secondly, (coughs) polemical debates have merit only where each side is completely open-minded and is prepared to accept the logical consequences, whatever they may be, even if that means to drop long-held cherished beliefs. (coughs) In reality, that is of course mostly not the case, and debaters mostly seek to refute the other side and time over it without regard to truth. For that matter, to suggest a debate to determine the truth about a most serious matter with strict time restraints of you speak 20 minutes, 5 minutes, 6 minutes, and the other side, and so forth, is rather an absurd tragic comedy. It's like telling a doctor you have 5 minutes for this part of the operation and 6 minutes for that part, regardless what you may find in the patient. Thirdly, for Jews to debate missionary evangelistic groups is especially offensive. To appear on the same stage to debate our individual beliefs creates a perception of two equal parties, two parallel religions as it were. It appears to lend credibility or equal status to groups or individuals whose sole aim in life it is to deny and destroy authentic Judaism and to lead Jews astray. This we cannot do and never will do. We despise those who would destroy our souls, our spiritual reality, no less than we despise those who would destroy us physically. The interest in debates is not one of pursuing truth, but hopefully to score points for the followers and prospective victims. I may sound harsh, but I'm committed to truth. I agreed to come here exclusively for an objective pursuit of truth, thus I have no choice but to be open and frank as opposed to saying one thing and thinking or feeling another. Fourthly, most serious of all, there is an aspect of dishonesty in having a polemical debate in 1995 on Christian allegations about Judaism. There have been numerous such debates over the past 2,000 years with Christian theologians or Jewish apostates, generally forced upon us by the dominant Christian powers, mostly with the threat that if the Jews would lose the debate, their communities would be forced to convert, killed or expelled. We had to weigh our words and arguments most carefully so as not to offend the Christian authorities and suffer dire consequences. Oftentimes we suffered with these anyway because our opponents were furiously frustrated by failing to present valid arguments. That is another reason why we Jews don't like polemical debates. In short, we Jews have already been confronted by every conceivable question and challenge and already answered every single one of them. We have never lost a debate. Many of these debates have been recorded, even by Christians, and are readily available in books printed in many languages and found in numerous libraries in addition to numerous polemical and apologetic works composed and printed in medieval and modern times. Practically speaking, this means that there is something basically wrong when somebody still wants to debate us on these issues. If they really want to find out what's what, they can simply go to a bookstore or library and find out the answers to all and any of their questions, plus infinitely more than they want to find. Both the Bible and the rabbinic writings have been thoroughly taken apart in these debates, with every possible detail discussed as I question the motivations and merits of such debates and view them as, fishing, as cheap fishing expeditions for purely ulterior motives. What then am I doing here? <laughs> A, to make these points public once and for all. B, to give the lie once and for all to the claim that we rabbis are afraid to debate or have something to hide. I'm not interested in attacking another religion which is forbidden by Jewish law or to try and convince Christians to change their minds or beliefs, etc. My sole and ultimate goal is to get missionaries off our backs, to say to them, leave Jews alone. You have nothing to teach us. You have nothing but your personal beliefs, things that you chose to believe in but cannot substantiate objectively. Thus stop harassing Jews to change what you and we know to be absolutely true, the revealed word of God, for something that is no more than your personal leap of faith in the claims and allegations of one or more individuals of the New Testament which you chose to believe just as Muslims chose to believe in Muhammad, Buddhists chose to believe in Buddha, Parsis chose to believe in Zoroaster, Mormons chose to believe in Joseph Smith, Munis chose to believe in. Moon, etc etc, etc. And to the Jews among you USA, return to your fault, to your roots, to that which we all know to be true. Stop speculating about concepts and beliefs alien and unacceptable to your Judaism, and get to know about yourself, your heritage, the legacy of your faith, your Jewish link to God. Distance yourselves from mere allegations and unsubstantiated claims of strangers paying on your souls and come back to that which we know for sure that it came from God himself, namely the Torah and its commandments.
1: Thank you, Dr. Choquette. Dr. Brown, your five-minute opening statement, sir.
3: I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to be here tonight. I welcome this uh, very much because we have a legitimate representative tonight of what calls itself authentic Judaism, which I will demonstrate to you, begs the question and assumes what it wants to prove. It's been 23 years now that I have been actively following Jesus, Yeshua, as the Messiah of Israel and the nations. And I was told over and over and over for years by rabbis, by Jewish scholars, you only believe what you believe because you're ignorant. You only believe what you believe because there's no substance to it. I've been challenged over and over and over again, what is the evidence for this? Where is the proof? You have none. And I've offered for years, if I have none, then what do you have to fear by discussing things openly? So this is an opportunity for me to say, hear this man very carefully, listen to what he has to say, listen to what I have to say very carefully, review our words and see where the truth actually lies i would warn you to beware of sweeping bombastic statements by either side that prove nothing some of which in fact i have already heard namely that i and all other jewish believers in jesus here actually know the truth is against us i would propose that tonight you'll see where the truth really does in fact lie i personally heard on a videotape a challenge from rabbi shochet that he could not find anyone willing to debate him with a panel guaranteeing that there would be logical discussion and deduction and that he would even do it on live television so I'm very happy to answer that challenge And by the way historically the very first debates according to Christian recording we were told that we could check the record say that the Messianic Jews decisively refuted their rabbinic opponents according to Acts 1828 Uh, not only so I've been involved in uh, many debates we were just told that no time ever has the rabbinic side ever lost I'd encourage you to check and see check the records look look at recent debates and see now this is going to be my approach tonight Uh, I'll first seek to demonstrate from the Hebrew Scriptures that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah explain why it was that he had to come 2,000 years ago according to the scriptures, why he was to be rejected by his people, why he was to suffer and lay down his life as an atonement for the sins of the world, why he was to rise from the dead and be a light to the nations before his own people Israel would fully receive him, at which time he would then return and establish his kingdom on the earth. I will seek to demonstrate that from the Hebrew Bible. I was told many times as a new believer in Jesus, that the New Testament authors shot an arrow, and then they drew a bullseye around the arrow and said, Look, Jesus hit the bullseye. He fulfilled the prophecies, when in fact he fulfilled none. Quite to the contrary, I will seek to demonstrate that he hit the bullseye perfectly, and then later Judaism moved the target and said he fulfilled nothing. I'll do my best time permitting to refute all of the objections raised to Messianic prophecy by Rabbi Shochet. What I will seek to demonstrate is that there is no actual substance in any of the arguments. So if I'm unable to get to every single one of them, what I hope to prove is that each one raised has the full value of zero. So that zero plus zero plus zero times a million still equals zero. I will use rabbinic literature for two reasons. One, if I give you an interpretation of the Hebrew Bible and you say that's far-fetched, that's crazy, that's a later Christian view, if I can show you that this was also common in rabbinic circles, even among the rabbis, most all of whom rejected Jesus, then I can say this is not just some new-fangled Christian view, but this is actually recognized as a legitimate reading of the text. As to the question of can a Jew believe in the New Testament and be true to historic Judaism, I will seek to demonstrate that it is the religion of the Talmud that is not faithful to the Bible, and thus I will seek to demonstrate the spirit and essence of Rabbinic Judaism, and you can judge for yourselves whether it follows. I have actually seen much fruit from debates because people get provoked to study more, to think more, to search more, to sift more. I'm not expecting in a few minutes to change someone's life course, although anything is possible. What I'm expecting is to provoke you to think, to study, to research, to open up your heart, to ask God to get into the scriptures. Having done that, I trust that this will produce much lasting fruit.
1: Thank you, Dr. Brown. We will now have a 20-minute position statement from Dr. Choquette. Let me mention that Dr. Choquette has the option of finishing a little early and transferring some of his time to his rebuttal period a little bit later. So if he does not use all the 20 minutes, that time will be transferred to his rebuttal period a little bit later on. So Dr. Schochet, your 20 minute position statement, sir.
2: Before I start and the clock starts ticking, (coughs) just (coughs) one comment, uh, viewers discussion advised. Uh, meaning that since we all know this is a polemical debate, so obviously certain things will be said that may appear offensive to some, knowing nothing of that sort is intended. We have to just take things as they come and in context. So, just want this to be realized. Where do I start this? That button here, okay. There are two basic issues to deal with. Number one, could Jesus be the Jewish Messiah promised in the Bible? Two, can one be a follower of both the Jewish faith and the Christian faith? Like a Hebrew Christian, Jewish Christian, Jews for Jesus, or whatever else they call themselves. The answers to both these questions are categorical no's. Why is it impossible for Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah? Mashiach, the Jewish Messiah, is a concept wholly and totally derived from and dependent on the Jewish Bible. For all and any information, one can depend only on the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. To put it very briefly, there are ten basic aspects, read the biblical Mashiach and messianic era. Number one, Mashiach is a descendant of King David. He is obviously a human being. God has vouchsafed the divinely sanctioned rulership of the Jewish people, the throne of Israel, to David and his descendants forevermore. To be the legitimate successor to King David, therefore, Mashiach must be a direct descendant in paternal line, son after son, for the Torah restricts tribal affiliation and succession to paternal descendants only. Number two, of Mashiach it is said in Isaiah, the spirit of God will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God. He shall be inspired with fear of God. Number three, Mashiach will come after the children of Israel will sit solitary for many days without king and without prince and without sacrifice, Hosea chapter 3. Number four, the holy temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt to stand forevermore after Mashiach comes as explained in the book of Ezekiel. Number five, the exiles of Israel will be restored from all the corners of the world to the holy land, the land of Israel as explained in numerous passages in the five books of Moses and practically every prophet. This restoration of Israel is unconditional and will happen even if the people should not wish to return, as explained in Ezekiel. Number six, the whole earth, once Mashiach comes, will be filled with awareness, consciousness, knowledge, and perception of God and godliness. God's spirit will be upon his people endowing them all with the power of prophecy and vision. All mankind will worship God in unison. I leave out all the references, if necessary I'll quote them later on simply to save time. Number seven, oh sorry, part of number six also includes that the messianic era will be an end to evil and sin. Seven, the Messiah will usher in a permanent era of universal peace and harmony, a veritable utopia throughout the world. Isaiah chapter two, Isaiah chapter two, Micah chapter four, Zechariah chapter nine. Even the animal kingdom will be affected to the point that animals too will live in peace and harmony with one another. Number eight, the messianic era will witness the eradication of disease and all afflicted shall be healed, Isaiah 35. Death itself too shall cease, Isaiah 25. Number nine, in the final stage of the messianic era there will be a resurrection of the dead. Number ten, there will be marvelous prosperity with an abundance of every kind of produce. Now. Not a single one, not one, of these prophecies applies to Jesus, both according to the well-known Jewish tradition, which rejects Jesus categorically, as well as according to the admission of the New Testament. Number one, according to the New Testament, he was not the paternal descendant of David. And in Judaism, as said, it is only the father who determines tribal affiliation and succession. The mother determines the religion, the faith of the child, but not the tribal affiliation, as stated explicitly in Numbers. Number two, he did not come after Israel was without sacrifices, a holy temple, exiled to all corners of the world. Number three, the earth has certainly not been filled with the knowledge and perception of God since he came. Nor does all mankind worship God in unison, nor is there an end to evil and sin and warfare, Nor is the universal peace and harmony among men and animals on the eradication of disease and the resurrection of the dead. In fact, the world has never seen so much warfare, bloodshed, suffering, confusion, inhumanity, etc., as since the coming of Jesus, and very much, if not most, unfortunately, in his name. The idea of a second coming is a sheer invention without any source whatsoever, and contradicts even the words of Jesus himself, who promised that the messianic age and redemption would be in his generation. Matthew, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand this generation shall not pass till all these things be done Uh, little wonder then that his last words on the cross according to John uh, were words of disappointment and resignation when he said it is finished and bowed his head and gave up his spirit According to Matthew 3, John the Baptist made the same prediction and it's also found in Revelation to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass things which must shortly be done Behold, I come quickly, the time is at hand So obviously it was not meant even by the New Testament in terms of a second coming Number four, Moshiach is supposed to be a man with the spirit of God upon him a spirit of knowledge and the fear of God He shall be inspired with fear of God. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. Unfortunately, Jesus did not live up to this, as according to the records of the New Testament and Jewish records, he was a contentious and witting transgressor and denier of God's laws and commandments and Jewish tradition. To wit, a. He condoned the capital offence of his disciples, violating the Sabbath as recorded in Matthew chapter 12 and in fact publicly violated the Sabbath himself on several occasions, as recorded in Matthew chapter 12, Luke chapter 13, and Luke chapter 14. B. He denied and mocked the dietary laws of the Torah, as recorded in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7. C. He violated and mocked the need for ritual washing of the hands, as recorded in Matthew chapter 15, Mark chapter 7, Luke chapter 11. D. He ignored the practice and laws of ordained fasts, as recorded in Matthew chapter 6, Mark chapter 2, Luke chapter 6. E, he opposed and mocked communal prayers, as recorded in Matthew chapter 6. F, he violated and mocked the Ten Commandments precept of honoring one's mother and father, as recorded in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 23, Luke chapter 14. G, he denied the biblical permission to divorce, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. H, he violated the biblical prohibition against carrying a grudge and revenging yourself by cursing, threatening and planning revenge against those who would not believe and follow him as recorded in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 19 and the first book of Corinthians chapter 16. And if necessary, I'll quote you these passages. Uh, there, this is recorded explicitly. I, On the one hand, he pretended to affirm and strengthen the rabbinic ordinances of the Pharisees as recorded in Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 23 and then turned around to warn his followers to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees Matthew chapter 16 in short we are presented with the picture of a man who violated the eternal commands of God as ordained in the Bible sometimes using indefensible and immoral sophistry that others' data would commit the same violations arguing in effect that two wrongs make it right or irrational and others this type of arguments to justify himself. I'm not even going to touch upon the presumptuousness of arrogating to himself the power to stand above the law, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, make or break laws and commandments at will, forgive sins committed against God, or apparent blasphemies. All this is a very, very far cry from one inspired by and filled with the spirit of the fear of God. Jesus' behavior thus violated the explicit commandments of the Bible which state A Deuteron- Deuteronomy four two do not add to the word that I command you and do not subtract from it. And again in Deuteronomy chapter thirteen verse one, do not add to it and do not subtract from it, which is followed incidentally by the warning about false prophets leading Israel astray. And B Deuteronomy chapter 8-12, to turn to the priests or the judge at the time for all religious disputes, and then And I quote, do as they tell you. Follow all they instruct you. Do not stray to the right or left from the word that they declare to you, which is the biblical source for the authority of the rabbis or Pharisees, whose instructions must be followed, and as Jesus himself suggests and recommends and demands of his followers in some parts. Conclusion, Jesus did not live up to a single criterion of Mashiach, the Messiah discussed in the prophecies of the Jewish prophets addressed and promised to the Jewish people and recorded in the Jewish Bible. As for the second issue, whether a Jew can remain a member of the Jewish faith and also believe in Jesus and the New Testament, the biblical passages from Deuteronomy just cited, forbidding any changes in the Jewish Bible, adding or subtracting, let alone accepting someone as a prophet or more, who himself violated the biblical precepts, already answers this question with a categorical no. Moreover, Deuteronomy 4.35 states, You were shown, the revelation of God at Sinai, in order that you may know that the Lord is the God and there is none beside him. None, or the same word, can also mean nothing beside him. Again, Deuteronomy 4.39, you are to know this day and take to your heart that the Lord is the God in the heaven above and on the earth below there is none other. This clearly forbids ascribing any divinity or authority to anyone or anything besides God, lest one be guilty of idolatry. Moreover, just as only American authorities can determine American citizenship and only French authorities can determine French citizenship, so only Jewish traditional authorities, the unbroken chain of the authorities of the Jewish faith, meaning the Pharisees or rabbis, can determine membership in the Jewish faith. There is no need to mention that these Jewish authorities have determined that one cannot be a member of the Jewish faith while also accepting Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna or Zoroaster. Indeed, Even the New Testament recognizes this fact and rejects the idea of retaining Jewish religious identity and Christianity. According to the New Testament, the Israel of old has been superseded by the new Israel, the new Jews, the new seed of Abraham, which are all the believers in Jesus. And I quote, for he is not a Jew who is one on the outside, nor a circumcision that which is on the outside in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one on the inside, and circumcision is that of the heart in spirit and not by the written code. Romans. Not all out of Israel or Israel, neither because they are Abram's seed are they all children. The children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Again Romans. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. Those who are of faith... These are the sons of Abraham. As many as are of the works of the law, Jews, observing the Torah, are under a curse. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus. If you are of Christ, you are really Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now in Jesus we came near, for he made the both one, meaning Jew and Gentile, and broke down the wall of partition that he might create the two into one new man, in one body, through the stake. There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, and so forth. Then you have a typical diatribe of Paul, anti-Semitic I call it, where he starts denying even that the Jewish people are the true children of Abraham, the true heirs of Abraham. And he writes the following, these are the, this incidentally from Galatians chapter 4, These are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which bring forth children for bondage, and which is Hagar, the bondmaid of Abraham. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, corresponding with the Jerusalem of today, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem which is above is free, and is the mother of us all. We, brothers, as Isaac was, are children belonging to the promise. Just as then the one born in the man of the flesh persecuted the one according to the spirit, meaning the son of Hagar persecuted Isaac, so also now. Nevertheless, what the Scripture say, throw out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we are not children of the bondwoman of the free. Meaning in other words, that Jews are no longer are not Jews, are not the rightful descendants of Abraham, but those who believe in Jesus are. The very idea of Hebrew Christians the Jews for Jesus, who would retain some Jewish religious identity, therefore, stands in direct contradiction contradiction to both Judaism as well as the New Testament indeed the New Testament goes so far as to say that real Jews have nothing to gain from accepting Jesus if you are circumcised Christ shall profit you nothing I bear witness to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law Galatians chapter 5 so if you had the misfortune that at 8 days old you were circumcised forget about Jesus he's not going to help you anything Moreover, if you are circumcised, like I just quoted, Christ shall avail you nothing. If righteousness is through the law, Christ really died for nothing. This man can no longer be righteous through the law. Though those who adhere to the law are heirs, the faith has been made void and the promise ineffective because the law produces wrath. For all those who are of the works of the law are under a curse. Moreover, listen carefully. The law is not made, meaning the Torah, the laws, the commandments of the Bible, God's eternal commandments. The law is not made for the righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslavers, for fornicators, for men who lie as males, for kidnappers, for liars, for those who swear falsely, and any other thing that is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel, which was committed to my trust. First book of Timothy, chapter 1. Thus, even by New Testament standards, it makes no sense to speak of Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, Jews for Jesus, or whatever they like to call themselves, now, Messianic Jews. These groups pretending to be Jewish and trying to fool themselves and others by observing certain Jewish laws, customs and practices, thus violate the New Testament passages, which I just quoted, which declare categorically that, as said, that if righteousness is through the commandments, through the observance of Jewish customs and practices, Christ really died for nothing. The execution of Jesus is the end of the law. It follows then that not only from Jewish tradition, but even according to the straightforward teaching of the New Testament, without interpreting, just reading what it says, not taking out of context, just the words as they are, the concept of Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews, Jews for Jesus, etc., makes as much sense as square circles, Jews for Zoroaster, kosher pigs, Christian Muslims, Christians for Krishna, and all other such oxymorons. Thank you.
3: Well I'm thrilled to hear so much of the New Testament quoted unfortunately uh, I would honestly say that was the greatest demonstration of verses taken out of context and misinterpreted in the shortest period of time that I've ever heard in my life. Now, we were just told nothing was taken out of contents everything was quoted out of context just pulled out but I want to go very briefly and deal with the key things that were said uh, as quickly as possible, remembering that as we refute them one by one, it doesn't matter if a thousand arguments were given, zero plus zero plus zero equals zero. And then I seek to take the rest of the time to demonstrate our point. Uh, we were told that there are ten characteristics of the Messiah according to the Jewish prophets. What we weren't told was that not one single passage quoted anywhere in the Hebrew Bible or referred to mentions Mashiach. In other words, this is interpretation telling you that these are Messianic passages. How do we know that these alone are Messianic passages? How do we know that these tell the whole story? Not a single one, said Mashiach. Now, what we must do is go through the scriptures and see how the Messianic idea developed, and then see what the prophets did speak of, and then see who fulfilled them. In terms of some of the specific objections, we were told, for example, that the Messiah was to be a descendant of David, and that tribal affiliation is determined paternally according to the Torah, and Numbers was cited. In point of fact, the opposite is true in cases where there is not a male father, uh, so that uh, the, the father, the male dies and only women are left then tribal affiliation will come through the women and you can find that at the end of the book of numbers what do you do with the case that according to rabbinic tradition and certain passages in scripture it's understood that messiah could well be a pre-existent one in other words greater than just man well the new testament gives us the answer through his mother he is a physical descendant of david but he is greater than David. That's the whole reason that the New Testament speaks of a virgin birth. So he is not just a son of David, but greater than David. Uh, We are told, according to Hosea, which I know meant Hosea 3, the Messiah will only come after years of exile and years without a temple and sacrifice. Quite the contrary, Hosea 3 says only after many, many, many years of desolation will the people of Israel then seek the Lord and David their king. In other words this is not someone who is now going to come but this is after years and years and years of being without him that they will then seek him why because he had come before that time of exile we were told according to the book of ezekiel that the messiah will build the temple where did ezekiel say those words we were told that there will be restoration after messiah comes where did the prophets explicitly say those words We were told that when the Messiah comes, there will be no more evil or sin, the glory of God will fill the earth. It is true, there are many prophecies about the Messiah, the King, who will bring all these things to pass. But none of these passages mentioned, none of these so-called descriptions of the Messiah mention the problem of human (coughs) sin. We don't need a king to just show up one day. We don't need someone to snap their fingers and suddenly there's no more war. It's like our our dear, respected former president, Jimmy Carter, going to Bosnia, and now there's peace. It doesn't just happen so easily unless there's a heart change. I'll show you that Messiah first had to come and deal with sin, that he was not just a king, but also a priest. Uh, We were told that there will be no disease when Messiah comes, according to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 again does not explicitly mention Messiah, but it does say that there will be great miracles of healing, which in fact were the hallmark of Jesus' ministry. We were told, for example, that the Second Coming is a myth and contradicts Jesus' own words. Jesus is the one that said that the Kingdom of God would be like a king going into a distant country, and people would all think he was delaying his coming. So it would only be after a long period that he would return. What about some of the passages referred to briefly, like Matthew 16? There are some tasting here who will not see death until the Son of Man comes and the glory of his kingdom. Keep reading into the very next chapter, Matthew 17, where it says that he was glorified in their presence and there was a manifestation of the kingdom. Matthew, Mark, Luke all have that same sequence. What of Matthew 24? All these things will be fulfilled before this generation passes. The Greek word generation can also be spoken and translated nation very same word is also nation, meaning this particular race. This particular race, the Jewish people, is still here. And many of those prophecies of which he did speak were fulfilled in that first generation of Israel also. The words of Jesus on the cross that is finished are not words of defeat, but words saying it has all been accomplished. Read John 19.28 before you read John 19.30. We're told that Jesus was a contentious transgressor. Let me just read you a couple of quotes, just so you can hear what other Jewish scholars say. This is not proof, but I just want you to know that Rabbi Shochet's position is not the only position. According to Rabbi Leo Beck, who was a great defender of Judaism in the years of the Holocaust in Germany, he said, Jesus is a genuine Jewish personality. All his struggles and works, his bearing and feeling, his speech and silence bear the stamp of a Jewish style. He was a Jew among Jews. According to Martin Buber, respected professor from Hebrew University two generations ago. He said, we must overcome the superstitious fear which we harbor about the messianic movement of Jesus, and we must place the movement where it belongs, namely in the spiritual history of Judaism. According to the great Israeli scholar of last generation, Joseph Klausner, Jesus was a Jew and he remained a Jew until his last breath. His one idea was to implant within his nation the idea of the coming of the Messiah. and all this, Jesus is the most Jewish of Jews, more Jewish than Hillel. From the standpoint of general humanity, he is indeed a light to the Gentiles. According to modern Orthodox Israeli scholar Pinchas Lapid, Jesus was utterly true to the Torah, as I myself hope to be. I even suspect that Jesus was even more true to the Torah than I, an Orthodox Jew. Strange that there are such different views here. According to a recent presentation by Rabbi Professor Shia Cohen, a respected historian at the Jewish Theological Seminary, He said the old view was that Jesus was a lawbreaker. Now we realize that he was an absolute Torah-keeping, observant Jew, although he differed with some of the rabbinic traditions in his day. And there were many different traditions and many different viewpoints. Just as today, there were reformed Jews and conservative and orthodox and ultra-orthodox and Hasidic, etc., etc. There were different views then. Jesus is considered by modern Jewish scholarship to have been totally faithful to the biblical law, although rejecting some current traditions. Shiaqom went on to say that the old view then was that Jesus, okay, maybe he was a good Jew, so now we know that Paul was the bad guy. He said, but the new Jewish consensus is that Paul was also an observant Jew. Well, where where do we get these deep contradictions from? Let's just take a look very quickly. Jesus was a contentious transgressor. He condoned Sabbath-breaking. He absolutely did not condone Sabbath-breaking, but he broke free from binding religious tradition. It was not work on the Sabbath to rub some grain between your hands and eat. That was not work. There is no evidence anywhere in Scripture that that would be punishable by death, although Rabbi Shochet said that that would have been punished by capital punishment. We're told, for example, that he mocked the dietary laws. Actually, what he explained was nothing that you eat actually defiles the inner man. But we know that years later, Peter could say, I've never eaten anything unclean, and for 400 years... As recorded by the early historians, Nazarenes, Messianic Jews, Jewish followers of Jesus, were recognized by the church because they all kept the biblical law, although they rejected rabbinic tradition and yet followed Jesus. Strange that if Jesus mocked all these things and made them void, that his followers continued to keep these. We're told that he rejected ritual hand-washing. Why shouldn't he? It's not taught in the Bible, it's a rabbinic tradition. He can reject it if he feels it's contrary to Scripture. We're told he rejected ordained fasts in Matthew 6. Read it, it's not there. We're told he rejected honoring parents. No, what he said, and I quote Rabbi Shochet from a lecture he gave in Australia, To paraphrase is that he said that allegiance to God must come first even before one's allegiance to parents and according to Rabbi Shechet that's correct for any religion. Any religion would actually teach that. We're told that Jesus cursed, threatened, and planned revenge. No, what he said and what the listeners understood him to say was that God himself would execute vengeance on those who rejected the Messiah, a thoroughly biblical teaching and a thoroughly right teaching. Jesus himself told his followers, don't fight for me. He told them, don't try and defend me. He said, my kingdom is not just of this world, otherwise my servants would be fighting for me. And we know generation in, generation out of true Christians, not those that call themselves Christians and denied it by their very actions. But generation after generation has blessed those that cursed them. As I think of of, uh, Jewish Christians who survived the Holocaust, who lost their entire families to the Nazis, weeping with Nazis and forgiving them and seeing that open the door to these people truly repenting. They learned that spirit from Jesus. We're told according to Matthew 5, Jesus said that you had to keep rabbinic law. He did not say that. He said you had to be faithful to Torah that would not be abrogated until heaven and earth passed away or until everything was fulfilled. And he warned against rabbinic tradition and said you've got to be more righteous than these people because some of them are actually hypocritical. Not all, but some of them are hypocritical. He did not just willingly make or break commandments, and yes, he did have the authority as Messiah to pronounce forgiveness of sins and bring people into right reconciliation with God. More importantly, we were told that he violated, don't add or don't subtract. In point of fact, it is rabbinic Judaism that has violated, don't add to the commandments or don't subtract. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of things that rabbinic Jews do today in great sincerity, in great zeal, and great devotion, that are not found anywhere in Torah, and yet they are considered binding law by the thousands. Just start sitting down and reading Talmud and look at all the things discussed. Look at the, the standard Jewish law called Shulchan Aruch, etc., etc. Thousands of things added, not taught. And many others taken away, although there is no Torah mandate to replace sacrifice with prayer. This was done by the sages at the end of the first century. We were told that according to Deuteronomy 17, there is authority to the rabbis to teach what the Bible actually says. What Deuteronomy 17 beginning in verse 9 actually does is gives the the, the Levitical priest or judge in that day to be someone of a supreme court to decide cases of civil, civil law, homicide, assault, etc. It does not give them authority to say who the Messiah is or not or when you should pray or when you shouldn't pray or what words you should say. But this is what the Talmudic tradition actually says. If they tell you right is left, you do what they say. Let me take it a step further. If they tell you, follow our traditions, and I'm giving to you what Moses Maimonides said in his introduction to his commentary on the Mishnah. If a prophet, proven by God with miracles, says to you, follow the plain sense of the scripture, and that plain sense violates the tradition of the sages, he's a false prophet, kill him. He should be put to death. Let me take it a step further according to a classic passage in the Talmud, Bava Metziah 59b, God himself can be overruled by the majority of the sages. In other words, if the majority of the rabbi says this is what the law says and God from heaven says that's not true, you can overrule him. What's that based on Exodus 23.2? The Hebrew clearly says do not follow the majority to pervert justice. However, The words, don't follow the majority, were cut down to follow the majority. According to Chief Rabbi Hertz in his Commentary on the Pentateuch, page 316, he says the rabbis disregarded the literal meaning of the last three words of the verse. The verse says, don't follow the majority. It got taken to say, follow the majority, even if it means overruling God. I say very clearly, it's not Jesus or the New Testament that is deviated from the Hebrew Bible. I say this with pain, I myself have written, Um, on anti-semitism in the so-called church. I have written about the beauty that is to be found in rabbinic Judaism and don't make all these people into demonic monsters. I have to say in all candor though that the rabbinic faith has departed from scripture. I could multiply examples on and on and on. Time, however, won't permit me to do that. We were told that following Jesus, recognizing him as son of God is idolatry. I would suggest that you look at various Hebrew roots, take a concordance, look up avad, which means to serve or worship, look up hishtachavah, which means to bow down before a prostrate, look up the Aramaic verb palach, which means to serve or worship, and you will see that all of these are spoken of God and the earthly or messianic king in Psalm 72 and Psalm 18, for example, in Daniel chapter 7. We are told to worship and serve God, but it also says that the Israelites will worship or serve or bow down before the Messianic King. There's nothing idolatrous about that. According to the New Testament, Yeshua, Yeshua, Jesus is the Word made flesh. The Aramaic concept is the Memra of the Lord. And I could quote passage after passage from the ancient Aramaic traditions called the Targum. For example, that the Memra, the word of the Lord, created man. That Abraham believed in the word of the Lord. That the word of the Lord will be my God, according to Jacob. On and on with citations. Is that idolatry or is that saying God revealed himself through his word? The one that Psalm 2 calls the Son of God, the anointed messianic king. Nothing idolatrous about it. Again, if there's any question, if you need more citations, I'd be happy to give them to you. It is utterly untrue that according to the New Testament, New Israel has superseded old. What Paul is saying is that the Gentiles have become spiritual children of Abraham by faith. What Paul says in Romans 2.29, as recognized in most modern translations, it is not the one who is just a Jew, physically, who is a true Jew, but the one who is a a Jew inwardly. In other words, between two Jews, who is the real Jew? The one who's one outwardly only, or the one who's one inwardly? When he says, not all who are Israel are Israel, not all who are physically and truly Israel are of the spiritual seed of Israel. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you will see that Paul addresses Gentile believers, and talks to them about... Israel and says that Israel is loved by God although Rejected in mass because of their rejection of the Messiah and God cares for them and God will restore them I've documented this very clearly in the idea that the church is spiritual Israel is a later idea that yes has opened itself up to terrible problems and yes gross persecution by so-called Christians of the Jewish people But if you go through the biblical text carefully, take out a concordance, go through the New Testament, look up every time it says Israel, every time it says Jew, you'll find several hundred occurrences and only two or three possible where he could be talking, or the New Testament could be talking about the church. What did Paul mean when he said there's neither Jew nor Greek, etc.? What he was saying was this. Rabbinic prayer every morning, you say, Thank God that I'm not a Gentile. Thank The man says this, I thank God that I'm not a woman. I thank God that I'm not a slave because only a male Jew is required to keep all the commandments. A free male Jew. Paul says in God, in the Messiah, all have equal access. Jew, Gentile, we all have equal standing. But he said there's neither male nor female. So far in 2,000 years of the church, I haven't seen a man give birth to a child yet. The point is very simple. He doesn't mean that male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave free cease to exist, but rather that we all have equal standing in God's sight. As to this notion that Galatians teaches that those who are circumcised don't need Jesus, what Paul is saying, anyone can read the context here, is that according to Galatians, Paul is writing to Gentiles who want to add something and say believing in Jesus is not enough. I need to add something. So what are they gonna add? They're gonna add circumcision, keep the law. Paul says, then you're a debtor to keep the whole thing. Then you don't need Jesus. If you're gonna try and do that, then try and work it out on your own. But aren't all who are under the works of the law under a curse? Yes, if you say, I will be justified by the law, and if I break the commandments, let the curse of God come on me, that's trouble. We need help. We need atonement. We need grace. And that's where the whole issue of Messiah comes in. There are more points made that, uh, again, time forbids me from uh, refuting. I think you've seen, though, that there's no substance to any of the charges made thus far. But let me go through this very quickly in the remaining nine or ten minutes. According to Malachi, the third chapter, the messenger of the Lord was to come and prepare the way for the Lord at the second temple. That temple, according to Rabbi David Kimchi, leading medieval expositor, that messenger of the covenant was the Messiah. He was expected 2,000 years ago before the temple was destroyed. According to Haggai, the second chapter, the glory of the second temple would be greater than the glory of the first. And yet there was no outward presence of God and supernatural manifestation. It wasn't just a matter of silver and gold and nice building. It had to be more than that. How was the glory of the second temple greater than the glory of the first? According to Daniel, the ninth chapter, before the second temple was destroyed, atonement for sin had to be made and righteousness brought in. And the Messiah, or an anointed one, would be cut off. All this had to happen before the second temple was destroyed. Not only so, there's a rabbinic tradition in Yoma 39b that says that for the last 40 years before the temple was destroyed, God no longer accepted the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. What happened 40 years before the temple was destroyed? The Messiah died on the cross. Well, you say, did the Messianic era start 2,000 years ago? Where is it? This question is raised in the Talmud. There's a Talmudic statement in Sanhedrin 97a and b, that the world would exist for 6,000 years. 2,000 years of desolation, 2,000 years of Torah, 2,000 years of Messiah. But because of our sins, all these years have gone by. The 2,000 years were to begin of Torah were to begin with Abraham. When did he live? About 2,000 years before Jesus. The next 2,000 years, meaning these last 2,000, were supposed to be the era of Messiah. What happened? Did he come or didn't he come, as the prophet said, and as even the Talmud expected? According to the Vilna Gaon, the most respected authority, of Lithuanian Jewry 300 years ago, he said, you may not see it now, but the Messianic era is actually here, meaning over 1500 years ago. He said it was ushered in to bring the world into apostasy. And then at the end of that total apostasy, Messiah would come. I say quite the opposite. Malachi was right, Haggai was right, Daniel was right. Messiah did come. The era has begun. Now, it's important that you realize that David was not just a king, but was also recognized as priest. No, he didn't function as an official priest, but according to Psalm 110, either spoken to David or by David. It cannot refer to Abraham, as some later commentaries claim. It is said, olam. You are a priest forever. Second Samuel 8:18 8, says, "David's sons were kohanim." Interesting. It was the job of the priest to make atonement for sin, among other things. And David typifies the one who is king yet also priest, according to Zechariah chapter three and chapter six. You can also find references in the fourth chapter. Yehoshua. Elsewhere in the in the Hebrew scriptures called Yeshua or Jesus if you want to put it in English Was to be a sign of the Tzemach, the branch who is universally recognized as Messiah, but he was a priest According to Zechariah priest uh, Zechariah 6 he would be a priest sitting on his throne So a sign the one typifying Messiah was to be a priest sitting on his throne Messiah dealt with sin And there's a rabbinic tradition that says that the death of the righteous brings atonement. In fact, according to Orthodox Jewish rabbi, Beryl Wine, it was an old Jewish tradition dating back to biblical times that the death of the righteous and innocent served as an expiation for the sins of the nation or the world. And since the temple was destroyed, a medieval chronicle says, Jewish chronicle, it is the death of the righteous that has served as atonement for the sins of the generation. Is that biblical? Well we do have the principle of sacrifice in the Hebrew Bible which Rashi says the blood is in the life and therefore the life substitutes for life in other words there's a principle of innocent life for guilty life but it goes beyond that when the Maccabees were being slaughtered in their fight to liberate the people of God 150 years and more before Jesus came Prayers of theirs were recorded. May my death be an expiation for my people. There are rabbinic traditions that say even though Isaac didn't die on the altar, it was credited as if he did die and the blood of Isaac is remembered by God. There's a New Year's prayer that's prayed in the synagogues, the time of Yom Kippur, an additional prayer saying, God, remember the sacrifice of Isaac and forgive the sins of Israel. But is this really a biblical concept? According to the book of Numbers, It deals with the death of the high priest, and it tells us that when the high priest dies, a man who has innocently killed someone can be released from exile. According to the Talmud, Makot 11b, the death of the high priest atones. According to the Talmud, Moed, Katan 28a, the death of the righteous brings atonement. Still, I say, we have some examples in the Bible, but is it really clear Yes, it's clearly taught beyond any contradiction in Isaiah 53: Achin chalayenu hu Surely, our sicknesses—he's born. hes pierced for our transgressions. Avon kulano, God caused to light on him the iniquity of us all. who rabim nasah. He bore the sin of many. This one, the servant of the Lord, who brings to fulfillment the destiny of Israel laid down his life as the righteous one making atonement for the sins of the world. Now, according to Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, this Messiah was to be a light to the nations. You see, he had to first come and deal with sin. Isaiah 53 tells us he would be rejected by his own people. Isaiah 49 also tells us he would be rejected by his own people. God's consolation is, you will be a light to the nations. I've been around the world, it's been my privilege to be in many nations to see people who were Hindus, worshiper of idols, who now worship the one true God and love the Jewish people and fast and pray for God's blessing on Israel. I know people who were former terrorists, people who were communist activists slicing people up alive, you name it, drug addicts, prostitutes around the world, people in every false religion and they have come to love the God of the Bible and the most amazing thing is, contrary to the outward history of an often apostate church that has persecuted Israel and has besmirched the name of Jesus horribly and brought untold suffering upon the Jewish people and the world, as well as butchered true Christians, contrary to that, I have seen phenomenal universal love for Israel, black pastors in America getting up in synagogues telling Jews, we will lay our lives down for you if you were threatened. Pastors in Sweden spending unbelievable amounts of money to buy a huge boat to help Jews make the Aliyah back to the land. Why? Because they love Israel, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Yes, they think they should believe in him, but they're going to love him anyway. Messiah has been a light to the nations. The word of Messiah has been going little by little by little all around the world. And now, at this end of the age, as we get closer and closer and closer, and more and more people, through the most influential Jew that's ever lived, Jesus, and through the most influential Jewish document that's ever been written, the New Testament, now this message has gone to the ends of the earth, and what's written in the prophets, that after this time, we Jewish people would recognize that it was for us that he came and turn back to him, It's happening. Even if people tell us we're not Jews, we're going to follow the scripture. Even if we're told we don't have a right to the Torah, it's our Torah, we'll keep it. We need a new covenant because in fact about half the commandments can't be kept without temple and sacrifice. Either God is left without a solution or he's instituted a new covenant and now through the writing of the New Testament we can understand how to follow God in spirit and in truth. And let me just say lastly that the rabbis asked the question, will the Messiah come riding on a donkey? Or will he come in the clouds of heaven? Will, will he be exalted? Will he, will he die in battle? Or will he rule and reign? Which? Both. He will come on a donkey and he will come in the clouds of heaven. According to Isaiah 52, 13, he will be highly exalted. According to 52:14, he will greatly suffer. First the suffering then the exaltation, rejected by his people, a light to the nations, having paid for our sins and ushered in eternal redemption. At the end of the age, he will return, and then all the other things Rabbi Shochet spoke about will come to pass. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Brown. Dr. Shochet will now have 12 minutes of rebuttal, after which time we will be taking a break. Dr. Shochet, your rebuttal, sir.
2: Well, I'm amazed. I'd really, really honestly expect it much better. I'm very disappointed, okay, can't hear me again, well, it's in his favor. (laughs) Um, Dr. Brown started off by saying that all the passages that I mentioned, not one of them refers to the Messiah, mentions the Messiah. And interestingly enough, his very last sentence was the exact opposite. Once the Second Coming comes, then all these things that Rabbi Shochet spoke about will come to pass. Now, is it messianic or is it not messianic? Give me a break. You can't have it both ways. For that matter, if any of all those passages are not messianic, then where do you have messianic in the whole Bible? There are no other passages speaking about Messiah. The word Mashiach relating to Messiah is not mentioned once in the Bible. That's a later rabbinic concept. Word Mashiach simply means anointed. Anointed can mean a high priest, anointed can mean a Gentile king, as I say, it refers to Cyrus, king of Persia as the anointed, every king that is anointed, and we refer to Mashiach simply to the Messiah as Mashiach, simply because he will be the anointed king. There is no significance to the word Mashiach. And as a matter of fact, therefore, also the reference to Daniel that he brought has absolutely nothing to do with the Messiah. It's not the messianic passage. It's talking the anointed will be cut off, meaning the high priest who is the anointed one. And since already speaking about those two references he put there together, in Jonah, there is not one single reference to messianic aspects whatsoever. All that just as an introduction. Secondly, the onus of proof is not on me. I don't have to disprove that Jesus is the Messiah. Anybody could claim that he is the Messiah. The onus of proof is on the one who claims that Jesus or anybody else, Shabzai or Bar or David Koresh or Jamie Jones or I don't care who, that they are the Messiah. It's up to them to offer proof. Dr. Brown has not offered one single passage, one single argument, one single point that Jesus has anything to do with Messiah or anything to do with the Old Testament. He spent a lot of time on the Talmud, on the rabbis, the oral Torah. We are not discussing the Talmud. We are not discussing the oral Torah tonight. What are you bringing that in for? As the moderator already said at the beginning, we are dealing now strictly with the biblical prophecies and the biblical concepts of what we are talking about Mashiach. So who gives a hoot what the rabbis say, what the rabbis don't say, what the rabbis believe, or what the rabbis don't believe? And who gives a hoot that the happy some Jews who praised Jesus? Especially a fellow like Martin Buber, who was intermarried, a totally secular Jew who didn't believe in anything, who led no religious life whatsoever, and likewise Joseph Klausner, Leo Beck, you want to know about Rabbi Beck? You want to know one of the sharpest criticisms against Christianity? Read Leo Beck's article Romantic Religion in his book, Judaism and Christianity. Even I have never said things as sharp and as provocative as he says there. Indeed, it's mainly geared against Paul, but as sharp as you can possibly be. For that matter, to quote to me some liberal rabbis, reform rabbis, or secular Jews altogether, or even Lapidus, whoever he is and never heard of the man and couldn't care less who he is, that is like me quoting to him a whole bunch of left-wing uh, Christian theologians and saying, look what they have to say about the New Testament. Look what they have to say about Jesus. I'm sure that Dr. Ban will say, well, they are not speaking for Christianity. This has nothing to do with traditional Christianity or historical Christianity or religious Christianity. It's irrelevant what they say. Well, thank you very much. I return the compliment. Um, for that matter, with regards to the oral law and the uh, rabbinic tradition, He says that Jesus rejected that. Oh, yeah? We'll have a look at Luke chapter 23, verses 2 and 3. The scribes and the Pharisees, that's the rabbis, the rabbinic tradition. Sit in the seat of Moses. They are the successors to Moses. Therefore, do and observe all the things they tell you. That's Jesus speaking. He's not talking about the Torah. He's not talking about Moses. He's not talking about the biblical tradition. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees because he realized, being a Jew, that there is an unbroken chain of tradition. Without the rabbis, without the scribes and the Pharisees, not a single word in the five books of Moses makes sense. Not one of them. Not one commandment. Take the first Jewish commandment, circumcision. What does circumcision mean? What do you have to circumcise? What do you have to cut off? Tip of your nose? Tip of your ears? Tip of your fingers? There is not one word anywhere in the Bible where you will find the definition of circumcision. Likewise, there is not one word in the Bible anywhere where you find the definition of what working on the Sabbath means. Therefore, for our uh, Dr. Brown to glibly say, where is the rubbing of corn regarded as a capital offense of desecrating the Sabbath? Well, in the same source where you get the definition of what is called working on, Sabbath, on the Sabbath. So either you take it or you don't take it. But you can't just uh, say glibly, well, who cares about this? You've, uh, you left it here at 12 minutes. Does mean, have perpetual 12 minutes? He's giving you time down there. Huh? I would like to know where I am, huh? 6.35. 6.35. I thought it was uh, 8.35, but anyway. <laughs> um, back to about the honoring which he says he heard me say in a lecture in Australia. He had one advantage over me. He had seen some of my videos or some of my tapes. I had never heard of Dr. Brown except by word of mouth, one or two things. I'm, I'm not talking about uh, he who hates not his father and his mother, etc., etc. Shall not be dis- my disciple. That's the passage I was referring there to. I'm referring to example Matthew chapter 12. Uh, verse 46 on while he yet talked to the people behold his mother and his brethren stood without, deciding to speak with him and one of his disciples says your mother and your brothers stand outside they want to come in but he answered them who is my mother and who are my brothers that's honoring your mother and if that is not enough uh, go on to Matthew chapter 23 verse 9 and call no man your father upon the earth for none is your father but one is your father the one in your heaven Matthew chapter 8 verse 21 Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. He wants him to go along with Jesus. He says, Lord, just give me a minute. There is a commandment in the Torah that you have to bury your dead, let alone your parents. You have an, an obligation to that. And what did Jesus answer him? He said to him, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Let him bury himself, the corpse there. And so I have one or two more passages of a similar nature, so therefore I'm not referring to what uh, is talking there about hate your mother and hate your father, which could possibly be interpreted. Now we get to the real essence. It was a very dazzling performance by Dr. Brown. And that dazzling performance, quoting, citing right, left and centre, very impressive, very erudite, but the man hasn't said a word. He has violated the principle of this whole debate, simply by stating, well, what does he mean? He says, the passages which I quoted were out of context. He has not shown one being out of context. But then he said like this, but what did Paul mean? And what does he say? Let us see what he said. I took the simple meaning of what it says there. Then comes Dr. Brown and says, oh, no, no, no. Don't take what it says there. You have to understand what he says. Well, I'm willing to grant him that. I'm very generous. However, that's the crux of our whole argument. The crux of the argument is the concept of interpretation. If you take the Bible, our Bible, the Jewish Bible, Dr. Brown and I agree, is the word of God. There is this Jewish tradition, inviolable, you're stuck with it whether you like it or not. There may be passages in the Jewish Bible which I may wonder about, being a 20th century modern philosopher, etc., etc. But if I believe that this is the word of God, I'm stuck with it. The New Testament, I am not stuck with. That we both agree about the Bible, the Jewish Bible. The New Testament is a book that some people have introduced and now claim this is the word of God. The onus of proof is on them. And therefore, you cannot just come and say, well, I first of all, he takes for granted that it is from God. Secondly, he takes for granted this is the interpretation and that is the interpretation. Does he realise that the Roman Catholics do not interpret the way he does? Does he realise that the Anglicans, what you call the Episcopalians, don't interpret the way he does? That the Lutherans don't interpret the way he does? That the Christian scientists don't interpret the way he does? That the Baha'i don't interpret the way he does? That the Seventh day Adventists don't interpret the way he does? So what is he saying? Well, that's my interpretation. Good luck with your interpretation. But that's exactly the point. That's your interpretation. And your interpretation, live and be happy with it. But when you go and try and missionize and evangelize, you are coming to your victims and you are telling them, this is the word of God. This is what God said to the apostles. This is what God said to Jesus. This is what the New Testament means. The onus of proof is on you. Your interpretation, for you it's good enough, be happy with it. But it has no more value, it has no more validity than Reverend Moon's interpretation of the New Testament, than David Korsh's interpretation of the New Testament, than Jimmy Jones' interpretation of the New Testament, or any crackpot that may come. I don't know about Phoenix, but in Toronto we have a special institution for people who claim that God speaks to them all the time, and who bring messages from God. Every one of them would pass a lie detector test without a doubt in my mind. But do I accept them? The answer is very simply no. Why should I? prove it to me. You can't prove it to me? Then forget it. They are going to give me interpretation. God says this, God says that. So at best, at the very best, what Dr. Brown has offered us is his private personal interpretation of how he reads the Jewish Bible, his private personal interpretation of how he reads the New Testament, and I say, good luck to him, but remember, that's your private leap of faith. That's your private religion. This has nothing to do with an objective reading of it. This doesn't stand a chance in any court of law, in any rational argument, in any rational logical debate. And that's the crux of the whole thing. I stick with that which we know to be true. I obviously have my interpretation, which is the Talmud. I didn't quote the Talmudic interpretation because I realise he doesn't accept them. That's why I stay away from that. So let's stick to that which we agree. And that is what he has failed to do. So he tries to be dazzlers with all kinds of irrelevant, ad hominem, ad populum, arguments about this and that. And like, for example, the koanim. That's such an absurdity, such nonsense. The word koanim does not just mean priest. The word koanim in Hebrew means the one who is holding an office. The whole Jewish people are called koanim, the kingdom of priests. There are baal, those who serve Baal. King David was not a kohen. When it says it simply means that they were also serving a certain function. Any function that you serve in, I can call you a coin in that concept. So there are so many total distortions, misinterpretations, and basically personal, private interpretations. We are not interested in those. Tell me what it says. Tell me what you can show that it says. And for the rest, you haven't said anything. Thank you, Dr. Shochet. We will now take
1: I almost hesitate to say this, a five-minute break. (coughs) Please try to be courteous to those in front of you at the door as you leave the room if you need to do so. I will begin calling you back at exactly quarter till. Please be back in your seats. Thank you. We are now going to begin the question and answer phase of our debate. Let me give you a brief overview as to how it will work because it can sometimes get a little confusing. We will have one question asked by each debater of the other. Each debater will have one minute to frame the question. The person being asked the question will have three minutes to respond. The questioner will then have two minutes to rebut that response. And then the original person who was asked the question will then have one minute to rebut the rebuttal. And then we'll reverse it all. There will be one question for each individual and then we will have six-minute closing statements from each of the debaters to conclude our debate this evening. We will begin with Dr. Brown asking a question of Dr. Choquette, he will have one minute to phrase his question, Dr. Choquette will then have three minutes to respond to the question. Dr. Brown, your question, sir.
3: This time pressure really makes life interesting, I'll tell you. Uh, Rabbi Shechet, I know that you do not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he died for the sins of the world, that he rose from the dead, that he is the true Savior and Messiah. Uh, you've refer- referred uh, in the past to John 14:6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, the words of Jesus, and called it the foulest, most abusive sentence ever uttered in the all of human literature, which makes Hitler's Mein Kampf look like a nursery rhyme. I say that to reinforce the strength with which you believe these things. How then can it be fine for Gentiles around the world to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord? Isn't the role of Israel to be a light to the nations? Isn't Israel called to proclaim His glory to the nations? Isn't it part of the role of the servants of the Lord to bring the world into the knowledge of God? How then can you say Christians can follow this Jesus?
2: Christians can follow this Jesus, Christians can follow whatever they want, insofar that they keep this as their personal faith, the same as any other adherents of any other faith group or any other religion can go and practice whatever they feel like. I will draw the line, however, when their actions or their beliefs will touch anybody else. If you want to believe that you have the one and only faith and no man cometh unto the Father except through me, go right ahead, be my guest. But don't you dare go and pass this personal belief, this personal leap of faith, on to somebody else by telling them this is truth. It, that's all it is, your belief. And if you try to get somebody else to believe that, that's no different than going around peddling dope. That you can turn on somebody by promising instant salvation, instant heaven, by this is the way to God, when you have absolutely no way in the world to prove that. You have absolutely no foundation for that. You have no substantiation for that. You want to believe it? You want to follow it? Go ahead. But stay away from others. Don't try to pass on others the same as you don't want me to go around and convince somebody uh, to go into promiscuity and convince him that that is right because I believe so, to take drugs because I believe that's perfectly okay, to commit certain crimes because I believe that is okay. Likewise, don't you go around and do the same with that article. That's all.
3: Well, in response, let me say that uh, you still haven't addressed my question. Isn't it the role of Israel to be a light to the nations? Isn't it the role of the servant of the Lord? uh, Let let me take my two, and then you get yours.
2: No, no, I said in that case, I still had a minute and a half. I'm sorry. So So I'll add it to the yes. Okay, go ahead.
3: No, why, why don't you continue this way? I can rebut your rebuttal. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> 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 do I,
2: which we'll try to do anyway.
1: Yes. Uh, okay, yeah, Dr. Charquet, yes. uh, we would normally just uh, – once you, you complete a, a time period, we don't transfer okay. that time on. But if you'd like to have one more minute to finish your response, please do so.
2: Now or later? Right now would be fine. Okay, fun. right now, okay. Uh, Israel is supposed to be enlightened to the nations precisely by living up according to that which God dictated to them. Not that I have to go around proselytizing. Then the Messiah will come, all mankind will serve God, but they will not become Jews. There will still be Jews and Gentiles. There will still be that distinction. But all mankind will serve God in unison. Uh, that in the day, God will be accepted by all mankind. And how are we going to get them? Now we are supposed to do so by living up according to the Torah. If we don't do so, we are failing. That's exactly our problem. Uh, when the Messiah will come, then this will be a foolproof system that the Jews will indeed live up according to the Torah, according to what the Bible prescribes for us. The Gentiles will see that, they will emulate our role model, and they will follow this as well, while the still remaining Gentiles.
1: Just so that everyone understands, Dr. Brown, you will now have a two-minute response, and then Dr. Shoket, you'll have a one-minute response. <coughs>
3: first although you continually speak of this being a leap of faith that I take having no proof having demonstrated nothing I'm pleased that we have all of this available for people to go through and look at carefully to see which of us if either are in fact taking a leap of faith however I would say that to say that there is absolute truth is not an arrogant personal thing to say that I must be right because I believe it that's arrogant but to say that God has absolute truth that there's one God that God has given absolute truth to Israel we would believe that you as a rabbi would want Jews here to come back to what you call tradition you would think that's imperative what if I said that's your personal belief keep it to yourself you say but I I want Jews to know why because we have absolute truth we have one God we have one scripture isn't that important the fact that Jews keeping Torah is a light to the nations no no way How is it a light to the nations if Jews living in Brooklyn, for example, or in Meir Sharim, in Jerusalem, are keeping Torah? 99.999% of the world won't even ever meet them, see them, know them. No, it says in the Psalms and other passages, proclaim His glory to the nations. Interestingly, one of the last things that the late Lubavitcher Rebbe began to do was send out emissaries to educate the Gentiles in what are the so-called Seven Laws of Noah. And as Lubavitch has explained to me, that they felt a burden to educate Gentiles in certain precepts. Although I differ with what they were teaching, I would say that the approach, in fact, is right, that Jews were to go. And if you want to take the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, he said that those Pharisees were very active going out and trying to proselytize people and win them over to Judaism. Since you quoted his words with some authority before, I just refer you to that. I say it behooves us as Jews to warn idolaters about idolatry. It behooves us as Jews to let the world know if they're worshipping a false savior, a false Messiah. Don't say, it's okay, believe in him, he's a myth, never, never did what he's supposed to do. Nonsense. But go ahead and believe in him. No.
2: You have a one-minute response? One minute. Response. Um, one minute. Uh, first of all, when we say, when we look at Christians, we do not look at them as idol worshippers. That's number one. A Jew who would accept Jesus would be worshipping idolatry. A Gentile who accepts Jesus is not worshipping idolatry. In Judaism, there's a concept which is called to associate other powers to God. A Jew is not allowed to do that, as in the verses from Deuteronomy that I quoted earlier. Uh, For a Gentile, however, for as long as a Gentile accepts the supremacy of God, the Almighty, if he wants to believe that God works through intercessors or has some other intermediary powers, there's nothing in the Torah in the Bible forbidding a Gentile to believe that. There's nothing wrong with that. So therefore, I do not have to move a Christian away from that faith, as long as he believes in God and as long as he believes in the basic morality of that which God has prescribed for all mankind.
1: We now go into the second phase of the question and answer. Dr. Shokhet, you will have one minute to phrase a question. Uh, Dr. Brown, you will have three
2: minutes to answer that question. Dr. Shokhet? I'll try to make it very brief and very short. I want to ask Dr. Brown one single question. How does he differentiate between his belief in Jesus and the New Testament and the belief of a Muslim in Muhammad and the Quran, a Buddhist, in the, in the Theravada, Mahayana writings, a Hindu's belief, and all the other religions in the world what they believe? How does Christianity insofar that it has moved away, added, whatever you want to call it, from the Jewish Bible, how does Christianity differ in terms of an act of faith in these things?
3: Christianity, or following Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, differs in many, many ways from the Hindu faith and the Muslim faith and atheistic views, etc. Number one, Jesus came as a Torah-observant Jew. Uh, Muhammad did not, Buddha did not, Confucius did not, Krishna did not, etc. Number two, only in the Gospel message is there an antidote to sin found. In other words, the issue of atonement. Where do we have our sins atoned for? How can we come into right relationship with God and sin is dealt with and yet we are changed? That's not dealt with in any of these other religions. Not only that, I do base my faith on the authority of the Hebrew scriptures. I know Jewish people that came to believe in Jesus, including rabbis. As they read the Hebrew Bible, they became convinced he is the one spoken of. So you can't prove Muhammad from the Hebrew Bible. You can't prove Krishna. You can't prove Confucius. You can't prove any of the others. Yet everything that Jesus did, the New Testament writers, the interpretation, all of it is thoroughly Jewish. All of it is in harmony with the Hebrew scriptures. In addition to that, I have seen the fruit of what is called the New Covenant in the lives of former Hindus and former Muslims and former Confucianists and former Buddhists etc who have testified almost universally that in spite of their zeal in spite of their work and their effort to somehow come into right relationship with God to receive a new heart to receive forgiveness of sins and a changed life they were unable in all of these different ways I've also heard that from rabbinic Jews who then, through faith in Jesus the Messiah, have been gloriously, wonderfully transformed around the world. One last thing just of interest, and, and Don Richardson in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts has documented this around the world. For example, the Karen people in the 1800s, 1812 actually in Burma, missionaries came to them. They seemed very dense. They seemed to have no concept of God whatsoever. They had Buddhist <laughs> background and animistic background. Missionaries talked to them, there was no fruit until one day they realized, wait a second, you were talking about this God, Yuwa, Yahweh, Jehovah, the, the name by which he was called, or, or the way it was expressed by the missionaries. They said, we have a tradition dating back centuries and centuries and centuries that someone would come to us with a book telling us about the one true God. And when they realized that, although for years they resisted the words of the missionaries, the Boardmans, George and Sarah Boardman, suddenly... Tens of thousands of them were converted and were baptized. This type of thing has happened around the world. In other words, God is supernaturally backing up this message, and through this message, the light of the one true God is going around the world, distinguishing it, in fact, from all other religions and all other faiths.
1: Dr. Schochat, your two-minute rebuttal, sir.
2: Again, I'm amazed. I really don't understand this. Atonement, first of all, the Muslims preach exactly the same type of atonement. Only those who will acknowledge that Allah is Allah and Muhammad is his final prophet shall be saved and all others, it's down to the barbecue. Um, as for Buddha and Krishna, as a matter of fact, they are less arrogant and less presumptuous than either Buddha, than either Muhammad or Jesus. They never made such claims, at least in most of the Hindu and Buddhist traditions, they are dividing into a whole bunch of different religions and they have an argument of something of all rivers lead to the same ocean. So to say that the only one who offers that, no, any religion that claims to be universal claims that they are the ones who offer uh, the atonement. It's likewise that the Mohammedans, the Muslims, uh, claim that they are the fulfilment of the Old Testament. The Christians, Jesus and the apostles came and said God gave the Torah, first edition. Then came a revised edition called the New Testament and that's it. Then came the Muslims and said nonsense. God came as a second edition, they accept Jesus, but then God came as a third edition and the third edition is the final edition. Then, of course, comes Joseph Smith and the Book of the Mormons. Then, of course, you have all the others, etc, etc. Where is it going to end? Yes, the Christians came as the book to all the natives and so forth. They came as the book in one hand and the cross in the other. And they said, you better kiss this or this kisses you. And that's how they became converted. And as for conversion, the Muslims converted just as many. As a matter of fact, the Muslim religion is the largest growing religion in the world and there are at least as many uh, as Muslims as there are Christians, especially if you don't even accept most Christians as being true Christians. Uh, As for the fruits of the beliefs in Jesus, look at the fruits. I know plenty of people who have been saved and taken out of the gutter from drugs and promiscuity by joining the Moonies, by joining Scientology, by joining Hare Krishna, by joining every cult that you can imagine. If you really believe in something, it will fix you up. Whether you believe in idolatry, you believe in nonsense, or you believe in yourself, it makes no difference. So therefore, I'm not impressed by the fruits of Jesus or Christianity. Dr Brown?
3: Well, I didn't expect to amaze you, but I'm pleased that I've been amazing you tonight. Is there the same kind of atonement in Islam? Absolutely not. I had the pleasure of studying Arabic and studying the Quran in Arabic. No, it does not offer atonement for sin through the shedding of blood. Islam claims to be the fulfillment of Hebrew Bible New Covenant. It's true, except the Bible of the Quran is not the same Bible. It's greatly changed. The New Testament is greatly changed. The claim in the Quran is that the Jews and Christians corrupted the original text and they don't have the true one. Whereas what I'm talking about is getting the actual Hebrew Bible in translation or in the original Hebrew to people around the world who then worship the God of Israel. Uh, And in fact, there's one interesting thing. Hebrew scriptures plus something called rabbinic literature. Instead of one book, it's volume after volume after volume after volume. That doesn't leave the Hebrew Bible alone. It says you need our tradition too. Conversion through book and cross, no, no, no. There were aberrations, so-called Christians who persecuted. That is the exception to the universal rule around the world. Thank
1: you, Dr. Brown. That's a very... How many questions do you have? That was his one-minute rebuttal. The the, the closing statements, or the uh, questions are finished. We're going to closing statements.
3: Rabbi Shochet has said that every single debate that has ever been held between Jew and Christian has been won by Jews. Tonight that couldn't be possible because we're both Jews. But we put that aside. When uh, we agreed to do this debate, I was invited, Rabbi Shochet was invited. I considered him to be one of the top representatives of what is known as the anti-missionary position. Uh, we've been very careful to go through guidelines and even who would go first, last, timing, and certain things decided by the flip of the coin, etc. Um, and one key thing to me was that everything had to be audio and videotaped. Why? Because at the outset I said to beware of sweeping bombastic statements. Whether by me or by Rabbi Shochet. <coughs> what I'd encourage you to do is, when these things are accessible, to go through very carefully look up texts. go through references. A key text Rabbi Shochet quoted, I want you to be able to check, was Matthew 23. He said Luke 23, but he meant Matthew 23, that's what he had in his notes. So if you want to look that up, I'm telling you where it is. Uh, And if I missed any rabbinic citations, you can check with him and he can set that right also. Now, the whole idea that he gave all of these qualifications, signs of the Messiah. And I said, nowhere did it say the Messiah would do it. And then at the end, I said, when Jesus returns, he'll fulfill these. What was my point? My point was, who says those are the only messianic passages in the Bible? So what I did was I demonstrated through quoting various passages that are either totally self-evidently messianic, by the terms and figures used being the same as elsewhere for example Semach branch is universally recognized as a messianic title so I showed her that that was a priestly king or for example Isaiah 53 which has an excellent background of rabbinic tradition interpreting it messianically it was interpreted of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in his sickness as messianic uh, the point there is very simple I showed text after text after text that is messianic in content, that is messianic as recognized by tradition, and said this had to happen also. To say that I showed nothing, demonstrated nothing, is basically like hitting a thousand and then saying you just struck out every time. Check. Look. Observe. Why did I quote Talmud? Well, I was told that authentic Judaism rejects this position outright. I was told that you could not believe in the New Testament and be faithful to historic Judaism. Therefore, it behooved me to demonstrate that rabbinic Judaism is not, in fact, the authentic or historic Judaism, but just another tradition of man. As to the idea that there is an unbroken chain of tradition going back to Moses, and without it you can't understand anything, let's be honest. Take a fundamental law of Torah that if people commit certain sins, they will be karate, cut off. The rabbinic tradition isn't sure between two options what it actually means. It's forgotten the meaning of certain animals, unclean animals, which they exactly are, how to identify them. Get a book like Arya Kaplan's Living Torah. Go through the notes and you'll see so many interpretations, so many ideas. Why? Because there is no unbroken tradition going back to Moses. In point of fact, only ultra-Orthodox Jewish scholars today will speak of that. Most modern Orthodox scholars will not even speak of an unbroken chain of tradition. You say, but I had my chain of tradition by which I interpreted texts. No, I went to the context. Read the context of the various passages quoted. Read the context of Matthew 23, where Jesus says, don't follow their example. Read the end of Matthew 21, when he says, yes, you sit in leadership now, but the authority will soon be taken away from you. No, Jesus did not say that we are forever to be under rabbinic law. There's a man named Rabbi Daniel Sion. He was the chief rabbi of Bulgaria helped to save many Jews from the Holocaust, settled in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, where he lived out the rest of his life there. He was a fervent believer in Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. In spite of all objections raised to him, I know others, religious Jews, who have put their faith in Jesus the Messiah. I know some who have been beaten, some who have been persecuted. The persecution has gone both ways at times. The fact is very simple. If you will seek God, with all of your heart and all of your soul because we have many prejudices it's said in the Psalms open my eyes, uncover them that I can behold wonders in your Torah in your law and your teaching I'd encourage you, seek God and say, look, I'm a weak human vessel, I don't know everything. Give me wisdom, give me insight as I study the text, and read on your own. Jewish believers in Jesus, I urge you to read through the scriptures carefully, to look at them, to look into the New Testament and see if, in fact, your faith stands on strong ground, as I determined to do over 20 years ago. I encourage rabbinic Jews and atheistic Jews and others read through the Hebrew Bible, seek God, study, look and see if in fact Jesus Yeshua is the prophesied Messiah. I rejoice to say that in fact the fastest growing religion is not Islam, but New Testament believing Christianity. The turn of this century, one out of every 13,000 Africans believed in Jesus. Now it's one out of three. God is moving, not with a sword, not with outward coercion, but by His Spirit, through His Word, changing lives. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who puts his trust in Him. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Brown. Dr. Chochet, you have six minutes, sir, for your closing statement.
2: <sighs> Shall I say, it missed me again. <laughs> Dr. Brown still misses the point. I am prepared to accept every single passage in the Old Testament to be messianic. Even those that he didn't mention. Even those that nobody mentions. And I still say, even if they are, so what? What has that got to do with Jesus? You want to find similarities? Well, let me tell you. I am prepared to stand here in front of you tonight and tell you that every single passage that is referred to by Christians to refer to Jesus applies to me no less that I have as many claims to be the Messiah as Jesus has any time. Plus more, that I have a paternal link to King David which he doesn't have. Uh, Secondly, uh, to say that modern Orthodox do not believe in an unbroken chain of tradition, that is sheer nonsense. A ludicrous lie. To say that there are Jews who have accepted Jesus, And he quotes even rabbis. Do you want me to quote how many priests and ministers and nuns and friars and who knows what else have dropped Christianity and became Jews or became Muslims or became Buddhists, etc., etc.? So what does that prove that a person has a certain weakness or a person allowed himself to be persuaded by emotional arguments, etc., etc.? What kind of an argument is that? The onus of proof is still upon them and so far they haven't proven a thing. Um, read carefully, he says. Yes, read carefully, by all means. I once dealt with a young man who got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, became the main recruiter on the campus in San Diego. I spent a few hours with him and at the end of it I told him one thing. Look, I'm not asking you to listen to my interpretations and what I say. I ask you one thing and one thing only. Go home tomorrow, stay away from them, stay away from me and stay away from the rabbis. Start reading the Old Testament, starting with Genesis 1.1. Don't look at Jewish interpretations, don't look at theirs. And then keep reading straightforward. And as you come to various passages, ask yourself, what does this mean? It took him two days to drop the whole thing. Two days. Now, back to my closing statement. I think I've clearly given you the reasons why historical Judaism rejects categorically any suggestion that the Christian savior is or might be the Messiah, or at least the Jewish Messiah. And B, why it is impossible for to be a faithful Jew when accepting the New Testament or the Christian savior. Christianity feels an obvious kinship to Judaism, but not vice versa. The Christian faith and scriptures mean absolutely nothing to the Jew, just as Islam or Hinduism mean nothing to the Jew or the Christian. We have no quarrel with the Christians, Muslims or Hindus. We respect other people's religions and are opposed to seeking their conversion to bring them into our ranks. If necessary, though, we shall respond firmly to any attacks on our beliefs, and especially the vicious and evil obsession to missionized Jews, to the egotistical, sanctimonious self-righteousness of exclusivists who proclaim their religion to be the one and only truth for all mankind. Yes, there is absolute truth, but it's not yours, it's not mine, it's God's. And that no man cometh unto God except by their way. As Coleridge said, He who begins by loving – he was a Christian – he who begins by loving Christianity better than truth will proceed by loving his own sect or church better than Christianity and end in loving himself better than all. I couldn't have said it better. Our real concern is his missionary attempts to proselytize Jews. Mostly easy pay, totally ignorant of their own identity, young children, bedridden in hospitals and at least one person here in this audience knows who and what I'm talking about defenseless elderly in nursing homes, schmat, the conversion of a Jew to another faith, is to us worse than physical death. It is the brutal murder of a Jew's soul, cutting off his connection with God and salvation. Christians and devout believers of any religion should understand that, for they feel the same way about their own identity, their own children, brothers and sisters. They, no less than we, regard the leading astray of their children into alien Kurds or religions as the worst tragedy. So do not do unto others what you would not want others to do unto you. Leave Jews alone. The last 2,000 years of history of go out into the hedges and compel them to enter, and to the Jew first, is the very root and branch of anti-Semitism, which has brought us 2,000 years of relentless persecutions, suffering and bloodshed, from Rome through the Crusades, the Inquisition, the continuous pogroms. This mission to the Jews under all its guises, whether going by the name of the various churches, Hebrew Christians, Jews for Jesus, Messianic Jews or what have you, is the very heart and soul of Nazism, which in our days resulted in the Holocaust of six million Jews. It is the fruit of a very, very bad tree, for a good tree brings forth good fruits, and only a bad tree brings forth bad fruits. In the words of Micah, for all the peoples, each man walks in the ways of his God, And as for us, we shall walk in the name of God, our God, for ever and ever. I doubt very much whether anyone has been swayed by tonight's presentations or by any other debate of this kind. Most believing Christians are committed to their dogmas of faith, and no arguments, regardless of sound or logical, will persuade them otherwise. Torah Judaism, the historical Jewish tradition, is based on the absolute evidence of God's public appearance at Sinai, revealing himself to over two million Jews, and verifying to them the unquestionable authenticity of Moses, historical proof passed on in documentary and oral tradition for over three and a half thousand years. Thus it is logically impossible that a knowledgeable Jew can ever forgo that unbroken chain of tradition and historical record for the personal allegation and belief of anything or anyone who would want to change one jot or one tittle of that tradition by adding or subtracting anything. Thus enough with all this nonsense. Let Jews be faithful Jews, even as Christians, Muslims, Buddhists or Hindus should be allowed to believe what they wish. Add some more, but time is up.
1: That concludes the formal debate section. We did, however, promise to you that at some point you would have an opportunity of expressing your thanks to the gentlemen for their preparation and their work, and I think this would be an appropriate time to do so.